We're going to be in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 this morning. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Lord willing, time willing, we will do the uh, rest of chapter 2 today. Now we've been doing our study here through 2 Timothy. I think this is the uh, fourth study in this book. And one of the things that we always try to remind you of as we're going through the book of 2 Timothy is the background, the setting of this book. Paul is writing this book from prison. He is literally what we would call on death row. This is the last epistle that he wrote. What we can piece together from going through this, that his death, his execution was imminent. So as you are reading through this book, these are the last words that he was writing to the church. As the Spirit was leading him, this is his swan song, if you will. And we've said this every study thus far, is remember that as you're going through this. Remember, what type of place would you be in if you were sitting there in jail, knowing that your death was coming? What would you want to say? What would the Lord want to use you for to, to speak through? And these are Paul's final words when it comes to that. Now, with that being said, our key verse, our key verse that we've been going through this, and going to the next slide there, Dustin, has been right here in 2 Timothy, verses 13 and 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in you. And we always focus on those two phrases. The first one in verse 13, hold fast. The second one there in verse 14, keep. Paul is saying, hold fast, stay strong. And last week we did the whole topic on suffering and enduring. We talked about how as Christians we will suffer in this world. As Christians we will go through difficult times in this world, but we endure through God's strength that he gives. Paul is not just preaching this, he's living it. It's easy to follow Christ when everything's going good, but yet when the things take a turn, can we still keep our faith and focus on him? And so Paul is telling us, even in the difficult times of life, hold fast, keep and that's what we're talking about here this morning. And that's what we're going to continue talking about. So that's the key verse. So with that being said, we left off last week in verse 11 of chapter 2. And let's go ahead and pick it up there in verse 11. And like I said, hopefully finish up chapter 2 today. It says in verse 11 of 2 Timothy, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I love that passage. I love how simple that is. That explains everything you need to know about Christianity right there in a nutshell. First things, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Ask yourself this. Have you died with Christ yet? Have you died? Have you died to those passions and desires and and those things that bring you down and hurt you spiritually? Have you died to those things that hurt your marriage, that hurt your relationships with others, that just hurt you personally? Have you died to those things yet? Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Let's build on this for a little bit. Romans 6. Romans 6 goes into great detail here about dying to the Lord. Romans 6, verse 5. says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we died with Christ, we'll live with Christ. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says that when you die to yourself and you give your life over to Jesus, salvation in a nutshell there, God says you live with me. And that's what this passage is talking about. Have you died? Have you died to those things that cause problems and hurts and pains in your life that take you farther away from your walk with the Lord than bring you closer to Him? Those are things that we need to constantly die to on a regular basis. Jesus went on further in Matthew 16. You don't need to turn there. He said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Jesus says, lose your life, gain life in me. Because here's the thing. You, you have a moral free will. You can choose to do what you want. You can choose to live your life the way you want. You can choose to live your life in sexual sin. You can live, you'll choose to lose your life in greed and lust and anger frustration. You can choose to live your life any way you want. But then you're never going to have life. Because you're going to live your life in yourself, in your sin, in your flesh. And what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying is you have to die to that to truly live in me. And that's the whole point of Christianity, isn't it? That we die to those things that hurt us, become more and more like Christ. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes you and sometimes me, I don't, I don't want to die to those things. Sometimes I want to do them. And the ongoing process of being a Christian is to let more of those things in your life die. Here's the thing. If, let's say, you go out and plant a garden. Now, if you want weeds in your garden, what do you have to do? Absolutely nothing. You can grow weeds just like that. See, and that's the same thing that happens in our life. If you want problems in your life, don't do anything. They'll come. Part of being a Christian, though, is weeding the garden. That's that dying process. So therefore, as you weed the garden, hopefully the fruits and the vegetables that you've planted can grow better, bigger, and stronger. The same thing spiritually. As you weed the garden of your life, those things that are good, the fruit that God wants, will then grow bigger, better, and stronger. It takes a lot of work to weed, and we don't want to do it. Now, a lot of us are willing to die. I use this example a lot in marriage counseling. I usually go to the husband and say, would you die for your wife? Somebody broke into your house, threatened your wife, threatened your kids. Would you die on the husband? Oh, yes. I would give my life for my family. I would die for them. Okay, now I'm asking you to do something easier. Can you just pick your socks up? You're willing to die for your wife, but can you die for 30 seconds to pick your socks up? Can you die for 30 seconds to just take your dishes from the table over to just the sink? Well, we grumble. We'll give our life for our family, but we won't die in those little things. Same thing spiritually. If I came to you now and said, the Lord needs a martyr, some of you would be like, Lord, send me. I'm willing to die for my faith. Okay, but are you willing to die some evening to give up a half hour of television to spend it in prayer and the Word? Well, can't miss my show. It's amazing. God is not asking us to die physically. Generally, I don't think many of us here will ever be faced with the chance of being martyred. But will we die to those little things on a day-in, day-out basis to be more like Christ and all that we say and do? We die. Next one. If we endure, we should also reign with Him. Endure. We talked about this last week. Enduring. Getting through those tough, difficult times of life. Good old King James is out there. Your word says, suffer. Life is hard. I don't want to repeat all of last week's lesson. Life is really difficult. We are going to suffer in this world. And God says, I will give you strength to endure. Now, if we endure, the result is, verse 12, we get to reign with Christ. Millennial reign, Revelation chapter 20. When Jesus is ruling and reigning on this world, we get to reign with him. But only if we endure, getting through those difficult times. And the way we endure is through God's strength. And what a neat blessing that is, is to know that we are going to endure through his strength, not our own strength. I can't, you can't. But through God, we can endure, and then we reign with him. Look at verse 12 again. If we deny him... He'll deny us. That word deny there literally means to disown. It means to disown. It means to disown the Lord and faith and say, I don't want him. Now, we may look at this verse and say, well, fine. I don't want him. He doesn't want me. It almost sounds like God's got a chip on his shoulder, doesn't it? Fine. You don't want me. I don't want you. Let's just be that way. No, that's not the way it is. A little bit further detail here. Matthew 10, 33. You don't need to turn there. It says, Jesus speaking, whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You can't spend your whole life denying Christ, disowning him, and saying you don't want a relationship with Jesus, all of a sudden die, go to heaven, stand there in heaven, and say, okay, Christ, I want to know you now. It doesn't work that way. If you spend your whole life disowning him, denying him, you don't have a relationship with him. If you don't have a relationship with him, how 
can you then get into heaven? That's why it's so important to know, to know him. Now, you may think denied. People deny Christ a lot. There's been times in my spiritual life where I've denied him. I didn't disown him. I just wasn't as strong in my light and a witness. And that's the example of Peter. Peter denied Jesus. Yes, he denied Jesus. He gave in to fear and worry there. But yet the Bible says his heart was still the Lord's. And he was still wanting to have that relationship with the Lord. That's a different subject. That's faithless, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Deny carries an action of not wanting a relationship with Christ. Do you know people like that that disown the Lord? They just don't want him. I always used to think when I was young in my faith that once everybody heard about Jesus, well, why, why wouldn't they want him? You just got to tell them about Christ. And I realized as I started telling people about Christ, even though you explain salvation to them, even though you explain heaven and hell to them, some people still just don't want Christ. They don't. They would rather live in whatever state that they're living in. They want the pleasures of sin. They want the world. They don't want that relationship with Christ. That's mind-blowing to me. But that's that denying. That's that disowning. Where I understand Jesus. I understand salvation. I don't want it. So therefore, since you don't want it, it's not that Christ doesn't want you. He still wants you, but he basically is not going to force himself on you. Jesus will never force anybody to be saved that doesn't want to be saved. They have to make the moral choice to want it. So therefore, let's not deny him. Let's not disown him. Which takes us then to our last one, being faithless. Faithless, doubt, lack of strength. It's not that you're faithless in the sense of, Lord, I, I don't know if you're out there. Faithless in the sense of, Lord, I know you're there. I know you love me, but I can't do this anymore. I, I can't, Lord. This is too difficult for me. This is too hard for me. I, I, I can't work on this loveless relationship anymore. I, I can't go to that job anymore. I, Lord, I can't make it through another day. I can't handle the physical pain. I can't handle the emotional, the spiritual pain. I can't. I give up. I'm done. Isn't it neat to know that when we reach those moments of doubt, those moments of lack of strength, we are faithless, but yet look at verse 13. He remains faithful. Wow. How many times in your Christian walk have you just wanted to give up? Aren't you glad that even though we may reach a point of, Lord, I can't anymore, God still says, I'm still here for you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son leaves, runs away. But as J. Vernon McGee says, the prodigal always returns. And the prodigal returns to what? The faithful father waiting for him. The only time, and, I, and someone told me this, and I, and I have not found it to be untrue, so I'm going to state it as a fact. If you find it untrue, let me know. The only time you ever see a picture of God being in a hurry in the Bible is when the prodigal son comes back, the father runs to his son to meet him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The only time God is in a hurry is he's in a hurry to restore a relationship with you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He just can't wait to have his son or daughter come home. You may be faithless. You may be lacking strength. You may be saying, Lord, I can't. And God says, but you can through me. And also, he cannot deny himself. See, that's the thing. Is we may be faithless. We may give up and say, Lord, I can't. God says, you're my child. I'm not going to disown you. You just need encouragement. You need strength during this difficult time. And that's exactly what God does. And what a beautiful, beautiful picture of his love and his faith and what he does. Now, with this understanding, what are we supposed to do with this? Verse 14. Remind them of these things. Remind them. That word literally means to be constantly reminding. Constantly reminding. Now think about this. Generally speaking, when you come to church, are you going to hear something that's brand new that you never heard before? Probably not. A lot of what we do out here at church is the constant reminder of what God has already said. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy here. Constantly remind them of these things. Now, it's frustrating sometimes, doesn't it, to hear the same thing. Again and again and again, over and over. But aren't you used to that in life? Aren't you constantly reminded of things? Think about this. Parents, growing up, raising your kids. How many times did you tell your kids to wash their hands? 
Hundreds, if not thousands, right? Wash your hands. I don't know how many times I hear that in the urban household. Boys, go wash your hands. Go wash your hands. And as now as an adult, you go into a public restroom or you go into a restaurant, what do you see up there on the sign? Employees must wash hands before returning to work, right? Doesn't that bother you a little bit that they have to remind their employees to wash hands? I just, that's always kind of bugged me, especially with food. You have to remind them to wash hands. Just a pet peeve of mine. You're constantly reminded. Okay, now you and you leave and you head home. How many times are you going to see a speed limit sign that says 55? You're going to be constantly reminded of the speed limit. Now, some of you are going to go on a road and there's going to be a stop sign, but the stop sign's not good enough. They have to put a sign before the stop sign that says what? Stop ahead. You are constantly reminded of things in life. Same thing here spiritually. Paul's telling Timothy, constantly remind him of these things. I know, I've heard it, I've heard it a hundred times. Yeah, and you need to hear it a hundred more times. Mr. Krager always had up in his uh, classroom, for those that had Jim as a teacher, always had the sign up that said what? Repetition teaches a donkey. There's a lot of truth to that. Constantly repeating those things that we need to hear, remind us. Well, what does the Lord say we need to be reminded of? Look at verse 14. Charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers, Reminded again about what? Watch your words. We just got done studying Proverbs last year. Wisdom is watching what you say, how you say, when you say it, and even if to say it at all. How many times in life do we get ourselves in trouble with our words? How many times do we get ourselves in trouble? And we're constantly getting ourselves into trouble with words. And you know what? God wants us reminded of that. So that's why he gave us verse 14. That's why he gave us verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase more ungodliness. Watch your words. That's why he gave us verses 23 and 24. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patient. Watch what you say. A mature believer watches their words. When I run into somebody who claims to be a Christian, and they're not watching what they say, they allow anger to get the best of them, they allow their words to get the best of them, and that frustration and that, and that immaturity... That's not the example of a mature believer. Maturity is watching what we say and do. If you don't watch your words, if I don't watch my words, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Not just trouble. Look at verse 16. That phrase, ruin of the hearers, that word literally means catastrophe. Now, you go to King James's out there, yours says something like subvert. But that word literally means catastrophe. Now, think back to your relationships with others. Maybe in your marriage, at work, at school, at home, with your siblings. I don't know. Have you ever had an argument? where you did not watch what you said and your words got you into trouble, what happens? It becomes a catastrophe. It's not worth it. It just becomes this big pit of no profit, a catastrophe, and God says, maturity says, keep yourself out of it. Don't get into the catastrophe. It's going to ruin you. Verse 16, idle babblings. Do you know people that just can't stop talking? And they're just going to get themselves in trouble. Sometimes wisdom is not saying anything. Idle babblings, those words have just constantly keep getting you in trouble. God says, watch what you say and how you say it. And in verse 23, foolish and ignorant disputes. How many times do we get ourselves into an argument with a loved one? And it's really just not worth it. It's foolish. It's ignorant. God help us all to watch what we say, how we say it, when we say it, even if we should say it at all. A mature believer watches their words, and as you watch your words, it keeps you from getting in trouble. That's maturity. And Jesus was the example of this. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 12, he gives a, a prophecy concerning Christ. In Matthew 12, from the prophet Isaiah, it says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. Listen to this, verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out. 
Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus didn't have to go around yelling. Now, he had some righteous anger. He cleansed the temple a couple of times. But Jesus did not have to get his point across by yelling and screaming at everybody. Do you know people, maybe neighbors, or you just hear them yelling and screaming all the time? You already know what that household is like. We were in Walmart a while ago, and there was a mom. My goodness, she was just laying into her kids, saying words that shouldn't be said. And you can just tell right then what a slice of what that home life must be like. Of just where every conversation is elevated voices with anger and wrath and yelling and screaming and quarreling that you can hear it out in the streets. My heart breaks for houses like that. That's not the way a Christian home is supposed to be run. Next one, verse 20, says, A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break. Meaning that when you see that reed that's already bruised, about to fall apart, Jesus didn't just go over and snap it. That's a picture of your life and my life. Your life may be falling apart. Christ isn't going to go in and just break your life and say, yeah, you deserve this. That's what we do as Christians a lot. We walk around with the stone in our hand just waiting for that person to be in sin because we just want to break them. They need to be taught their lesson. See, we feel it's our job. Well, really, isn't it the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Yeah, but the Holy Spirit's not doing a good enough job. It's my job. I need to tell people that they're wrong. Now, Jesus, when he ran into the woman at the well that was living with a guy, they weren't married, living in that sin state, he didn't attack her. He went up to her and said, hey, the man you're with right now is not your husband. He encouraged her. He said, make those changes. Become the woman you're supposed to be. Make it right with me. And, and he didn't attack her. When he ran into Zacchaeus, that was basically stealing money from people and living in greed. He didn't attack him. He said, make the changes. If you look at Christ, the only time you ever attack somebody, and I use that word lightly, were the Pharisees and Sadducees, spiritual hypocrites. Anybody else that truly wanted changes to be done in life, God says, I'm not here to break you. I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to point you in the right direction. That's one of the hardest things to do in Christianity is so often we have a tendency to attack when really we just need to in love look at that person and say, I love you enough to tell you that that's going to hurt you. I love you enough to tell you that that's wrong. And then just allow the Holy Spirit to work in their heart. Truth of the matter is, some people don't want the Holy Spirit to work in their heart. You can go to them lovingly, you can go to them nicely, and you can speak the truth to them, and they get their feathers all ruffled. That shows a heart issue between them and the Lord. Now that can be frustrating, that can be annoying, but that really just shows that they just need to spend that time with God and God has to speak to the heart to make it right. There's nothing we can do in that situation. We're not out here to break reeds. We're not out here to break people. The Holy Spirit will convict. But when they're convicted, we're out here to point them in the right direction towards Jesus Christ. This also does not mean that you cover up sin. This does not mean that you just ignore it. No, sometimes you have to go to that person in love and say these issues need to be addressed. Trust me, not fun to do. But if you love that person enough, you will speak honestly, truthfully, and lovingly to them to try to help them out. Because look at verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. We're not here to quarrel. We're here to be gentle to all. Now, who does all mean? All. Isn't that kind of interesting as Christians? We, we know we're supposed to love all, be patient to all, respect all, be gentle to all. But we have our limits. I'm supposed to be gentle to everybody but him. God has given me a reason. I'm, I'm allowed. I'm, I'm exempt from him because he's used up all my gentleness he's used up all my love and respect and honor so i'm done no gentle to all well they deserve it they live their life in the pig slop and the sin that's just what's going to happen to them yes they're, they're facing the ramifications of their choices but we still love them want to be gentle to them and point them in the right direction that's our goal, is to point them back towards Christ. We don't ignore the sin, we don't overlook the sin, but we point them to the person that can take care of the sin. What happens when you have people that want to quarrel and strife and fight? Well, 
If you will, look at verse 17. Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort who have strained, excuse me, strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. I don't like to use that word cancer. I don't. I mean, you look at what cancer does to somebody. To say that somebody's a cancer, that's a pretty powerful statement. In fact, some of your translations actually call it gangrene. That that person is a gangrene. That person is cancer. I hate to say this, but some churches have Hymenius and Philetuses. They do. I mean, not here at the 10 o'clock. It's the 8.30 people, but I'm just saying. It's okay. I told the 8.30 it wasn't the 8.30. I told them it was the 10 o'clock. See how that goes? There's cancers. There are. There are people that are just hurting the body of Christ. Well, what was Hymenius and Philetus doing? Well, verse 18, they were saying the resurrection's already passed. They were, they were shipwrecking people's faith. Paul said they were cancer. Now, this is tough, because out here at church you run into this. There's going to be people that are just difficult to get along with. Let's just be honest. There's going to be annoying Christians. <laughs> I mean, there just are. You may not see eye to eye with them. Other than you being born again both and being saved in Christ and being brothers and sisters in the Lord, you may not have a single thing that you're in common with in life. And other than Jesus, you maybe wouldn't really hang out. You may really disagree on some things. And I'm not saying the spiritual matters of life, but you're just not the type of personalities that click. Rich and I usually refer to those people as the gasoline in the match. Just don't, don't serve together. Don't sit together. Don't be around together. That's going to happen. But the Hymenius and Philetus, the cancers, these are people that you just don't get along with. These are people that are trying to cause hurt and pain to the body of Christ. These are people that the enemy is using to cause division and pain. And if you may not just click with somebody, and I may just say, listen, come on, you're not going to see eye to eye. Be patient with them, love them, pray for them, encourage them. You don't have to be best friends. But if somebody is a cancer, as a church, we need to step in and say, listen, you're causing more harm than good to the body of Christ, and this has to be nipped in the bud. Once again, not a fun thing to do, not something that we enjoy doing, but if somebody is hurting the body of Christ, we have to step in and say, this has to stop. This is what Hymenius and Philetus were doing. They were that cancer. They were that gangrene that was causing more problems than help. They were hurting the church spiritually. Now, before we think that they were pulling people away, look at verse 19. Nevertheless... The solid foundation of God stands. Amen. The solid foundation of God stands. If you're with Christ, your world may be rocked, your world may be shaken, but your foundation stands in Jesus. That is what gets you through the difficult, tough times of life. But what about the Hymenius and the Philetus? Look at the rest of verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his. God knows. You think God is up there in heaven saying, Oh my goodness, I didn't see Hymenius. He's causing problems. What am I going to do? He already knew. He already knew there. But God knows whose are his. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Those that are born again and saved, they're going to leave that sin behind them and move forward in the Lord. If someone chooses to stay in sin, man, that shows their heart. Because listen, in any church of any size, you're going to have some Hymenius and Philetus. You just are. Look at verse 20. In a great house... They're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. There's good vessels and there's bad vessels in the body of Christ. Exactly what it is. If you want a further study, check out Matthew 13. It talks about the wheat and the tares. There's good vessels and bad vessels. Now, what type of vessel are you? If you want to be the vessel, verse 21, that's useful for the master, prepared for good works, you need to be a vessel of honor. Lord, here I am, use me. I'm doing what I can to go deeper in you. I'm doing what I can to grow in you, to walk in you. I want to be that vessel that's used by the Lord. You don't want to be the vessel of dishonor. That's just not there for work, not for use. It's like a bucket with a hole in it. What good is a bucket with a hole in it? Now, at the Irvin house, 
what happens is we have all these buckets outside, and the boys love to go play with water, and they love to fill their buckets up with water. So everybody gets a bucket, and our youngest one, Layden, who's oh, about 20 months old, he always gets stuck with the bucket that has the hole or the crack in it. So what happens is all the boys go fill up their water, and they take their water where they're going to go and dump it in and start playing with it. So poor little Layden fills his bucket up with water, and he's walking to where he needs to take his bucket. And as he gets there, by the time he gets there, he looks down at what happened. There's no water in his bucket. Gosh, you guys are pathetic. It's okay. I mean, he's, he's only 20 months old. You guys are like, oh, no. You know, people are dying and going to hell, but the kid lost the water in his bucket. So what happens is he keeps he goes back, he fills up his bucket again, he walks, and by the time he gets there, what happens? The water's out of the bucket. He doesn't know what to do. So by this time, Mom and Dad step in, and we say, Bias, Judah, Kenan, give him a good bucket. So the point is, some of you are the bucket with the hole in it. The Lord wants to use you. He wants, to, he wants to fill you with the water of life so you can take that bucket and go tell other people about Christ. But every time he tries to use you, it just kind of flows right through. Now, he loves you, but you've got some serious cracks in your bucket. And the Lord says, I want to use you. I love you. I like you. But you're cracked up. I can't. I need to work with you. And see, this is what Paul is trying to tell Timothy here. There's going to be some buckets with holes in it in your church. That's just a fact. And what happens is, don't we get frustrated about those cracked buckets? Now, ignore my cracked bucket. Please don't look at mine. I just want to point out the cracks in your bucket. Now, God says that's the way it's going to be, and we need to remember there's going to be difficulties. There's going to be difficult people. There's going to be difficult situations. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to do this? Well, jump up to verse 25. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. If I see somebody that has a hole in their bucket, a crack in their bucket, I need to go to them in humility and say, I love you. But you've got some major flaws going on in your life. And humility. I know people that love to carry around the spiritual hammer, and they just love to smack people in the head with it. They would love to go correct every single person they possibly can. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's not doing a good enough job, and they have to do it themselves. The Bible says that we will have to correct people. That's a fact, but we do it in humility and love. We go to them. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not on the top of my list of things I like to do. But if it comes up, it has to come up because as a church and as a pastor, we also can't ignore the cracks in the bucket. And so the first step here is with these Hymenaeus and these Philetuses, as Paul's telling Timothy, you need to go to them. You need to correct them in love. You need to point them in the right direction. Hopefully, they listen. Truth of the matter is, sometimes they don't want to listen. Sometimes they don't want to make the changes. You go to them, what do you tell them? Well, you tell them, verse 22, Flee also youthful us, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Simple. You flee and you pursue. Opposites. You flee what is wrong, you pursue what is good. How simple is that in Christianity? Lord, I'm going to flee those things that are bad, that are going to hurt me and bring me down, bring my marriage down, bring my witness down, and I'm going to pursue those things that are good. It's a really simple, straightforward thing. Flee what is bad, pursue what is good. Now, if we would just do that, and as verse 22 says, have a pure heart, my goodness, won't things be different? Lord, help us to flee those things that are bad and pursue what is good. And I'm willing to bet it's not that you guys or myself are struggling with what's bad and what's good in our life. It's not like you're sitting here saying, Lord, I really want to flee what's bad, but I don't know what evil's in my life. I'm willing to bet that right now you probably know those things that need to change in your life. I know I do. That's why we're going to finish with communion today, is to go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is the evil that I need to flee. Help me. Lord, here's what I need to pursue. Help me. It's one thing to say it, but Lord, we want to do it. So the first step is correcting, verses 25 through 26. 
lot of times people say, well, I don't want to correct. Why? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell a non-believer. I don't know what to tell a believer. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I like how the King James says it. Study to show yourself approved. That's effort. Diligence, effort, study, effort. God says get into the word, get into prayer, and grow. Now, I know some of your work schedules and life schedules, it's a struggle just to even get to church on, on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. But for those that can, well, that's why we offer so many things during the week. We have a mom's group. We have a ladies' Bible study. We have a men's Bible study, which is starting up here in September. We have discipleship classes on Sunday morning. We have a financial discipleship class. We're starting up a young adult Bible study. I mean, we try to have a study for whatever segment of life you're in. So therefore, you can do exactly what verse 15 says. Study. Study to show yourself approved to God. We want to give you that opportunity to go deeper in those things. And I encourage you, if you look at yourself in the spiritual mirror and say, Boy, I'm not where I need to be. Maybe you need to grab one of those small group studies. Those small group studies help us be accountable. Look at the end of verse 22 one more time. Those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The idea is we're supposed to be in this together. Together. Encouraging one another, uplifting one another. A lot of times, we don't want that accountability. But we need it. And so we need to study to show ourselves. So, I want to study to show myself approved. So, I want to know these things. I want to go deeper. So, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? What are the basics of the faith? Dustin, can you put that last slide up? This is the passage that we wanted to kind of get in here. There's that 2 Timothy 2.15. Look at the King James translation. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Great refrigerator verse. Great refrigerator verse. Simple questions. When you're dealing with non-believers, these are at least the three simple things I think as a Christian that we need to study to be able to explain. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, just simple Christianity 101. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Can you explain that in a straightforward, loving manner, but also without doing a discourse on theology? We don't need a 10-minute explanation. But just in a few short, simple sentences, can you explain that? I think when Rich goes through Discipleship 1, I think he does something called the one-minute testimony, where just you kind of just explain Christianity and you getting saved in about a minute. Just a simple, straightforward thing. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? That's what a non-believer needs to know. How does one get into heaven? Can you explain to somebody, if somebody came up to you and said, how do I get into heaven? Can you explain to them simply but yet thoroughly, how do you get into heaven? And the last one that pops up, loves, how do you know the Bible's true? Now you're going to be quoting scriptures to people, how do you know the Bible's true? I think this is the, the basics of, of Christianity. Understanding why Jesus had to die on the cross, how does one get into heaven, and understanding that the Bible is true. Can, can you study to show yourself approved in those areas to know that and to understand that? So that way... When you're put into situations and circumstances in life, you have the working knowledge to be able to explain your faith effectively and straightforwardly. Like I said, that little one-minute testimony. See, too often we see the extremes. The extreme of, well, I, you know, I really don't know. I just, I just know you need to believe on Jesus. I don't really know why, but just believe on Jesus. Okay, that's good. That's a, that's a great first block. <laughs> Let's build on that. Or you have the other ones, and I've seen people do this. Where someone wants to know about Jesus... 20 minutes later, they're quoting some Greek Hebrew word, and you know, I don't know what they're quoting. And it's like, wow, you lost the person. Go back and look in the Bible. Look at Jesus' quote unquote altar calls. They were pretty simple, straightforward. Look at when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, look at Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Pretty simple, straightforward stuff on who Jesus is. Let's keep it simple. 2 Corinthians talks about the simplicity of Jesus. So if this is something that you find yourself spiritually not as strong in, I encourage you, prayerfully get involved with some of those groups. 
I think you'll be blessed by it. I think it will really help you. And, and it will strengthen those areas that are spiritually weak to help you go deeper in your walk with the Lord. Because this is the whole point, is you want to go deeper in your walk with the Lord. Boy, it's easy not to go deeper. I, and, and I can't remember if I already said this today. If I did, forgive me. But let's say you go out and plant a garden. What do you have to do to get weeds? Nothing. They just grow. It's easy to have the weeds in life grow. We have to take effort and diligence to get the weeds out of our life. Lord, help us to do that. And that's why we want to end with communion, is to give you an opportunity to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want this. I want to go deeper in all that I say and do. Bob, you can go back and get the kids. Now, as we're getting the kids and getting ready to come in here, just a couple quick things on communion. You know, out here at Harvest, we have what is called an open communion policy. We don't have church attendance. But we think it's vitally important that before you take a communion, to have this moment to spiritually say, Lord, am I where I'm supposed to be spiritually with you? It says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, referring to communion, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's what we want to do right now, is examine ourselves. It says in Psalm 139, Lord, search me and try me, and know if there's any iniquity in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. We want to have a time right now where we can go to the Lord and give those things over to Him. Maybe you are the faithless that we talked about earlier in the message. Go to the Lord now and, I, Lord, I need that strength. I'm ready to give up. Maybe you're the one that we talked about earlier in the message where there's things you need to die to. Lord, help me to die to those things that are hurting me. Maybe you're the one earlier in the message that you were denying Christ. You disowned Him. I don't need Him. You do need Him. You know, see, Jesus, the reason He went to the cross is that you and I owed a debt that we can't pay, that debt of sin. Jesus was the only one, if you would, that had the money in the wallet that can pay our debt. So he went to the cross, which was paying of the debt for the sin. We deserve that punishment of sin, and Christ went to the cross and paid that punishment for us. So therefore, we accept that sacrifice, that payment on our behalf. And when it says that you believe in Christ, believe just doesn't mean accept the fact that it's true, acknowledge the fact that it happened. Believe means to place your trust in him. Many people believe that Jesus lived. Many people believe that Jesus died on the cross. But do you believe that in placing your saving faith and knowledge in that? Because the only way to get into heaven, God is perfect. And God loves you and he wants you into heaven with him. But he says perfection needs to be there. The only way you and I can be made perfect, can be made complete and clean, is through Christ by him paying the debt. And that's what we do with communion here, is we look back to what he did. The representation of the body that is broken for us, the representation of the blood that was shed for us. And as we partake of communion, it's the closest we get to the foot of the cross truly understand what Christ went through on our behalf. And so as we partake of this, this is an opportunity for us to give to the Lord our struggles and sins that we're struggling with. And that's what we want to do right now. Let's go to the Lord quietly and let us examine the Lord, examine our lives, and let the Lord help us. Lord, as we come to you now, your word says examine. We want to do that. We, want to, we ask that you'd come in your spirit and search us and try us. Lord, if there's someone here today that has never known you personally, I pray that now, if today is the day of salvation, where they say, I want my debt paid. I want my sins forgiven. I want that. In the name of Jesus, I pray you speak to their heart. Lord, if there's some here today that is struggling with the faith, their faith is faltering, uplift them. Some here today that is struggling with the flesh, the flesh is getting the best of them, and strengthen them, uplift them. Lord, show us the path you want us to walk and help us to go down that path in all that we say and do. Lord, you're not here to break us. You're here to love us. You're here to take us and change us and mold us into what you want us to be. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And Lord, we come to you quietly, silently as individuals, and we give you those areas that we're weak in, that we're faltering in. Lord, it can be so overwhelming to quiet our hearts and just be convicted of so many things, and the enemy tries to condemn us. Lord, 
You said that whoever falls on Jesus will be broken, or the rock will fall on them. Lord, you're not here to break us into pieces out of anger, but you're here to break our spirit in the sense of we need you. Lord, we do need you. Help us to go deeper in you in all that we say and do, and as we get ready to partake of communion, prepare our hearts for what it means and what it represents. We lift this up in your name. Amen. The guys that are helping with communion, and the kids can go ahead and come in.